This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And this next story, well, it's close to home. And by the way, the best stories that we all have are right near us, folks, in our neighborhood, in our families, in our churches, in our businesses. And here at Our American Stories, we've gotten to know one of our workers, an affiliate sales guy from Alabama, and a great guy, a great family. Well, he shared his story with me, and I was just... Well, it wasn't just me. It was everybody in the room listening. It was as if we were hearing a movie being told, a great movie, a compelling movie. It was a heck of a story. And so we asked him to tell it. And so, without further ado, this is a story about everything, folks. Love, hate, family, and redemption. Um, I I had a pattern in my life of... um uh, w- with girls, um, putting me in the friend zone. Um, and one of the, uh, the, the very first girl that ever put me in the friend zone, I remember was in eighth grade and I was in Mr. Dunn science class. And, um, you know, I remember seeing her, um, as it was yesterday. And I, I remember leaning over to my friend Ryan and saying, who's that? And, um, neither of us knew who she was. And I, um, developed the courage to ask her to eighth grade graduation dance. And I guess what I mean by develop the courage, I asked one of her friends to ask her if she would go to the eighth grade graduation dance with me. And, and she said, yes, after that, I, um, you know, told her how much I liked her, wanted to be with her, professed my, you know, undying love for her. And, um, she put me in the friend zone and that, and that would be a pattern that we go on for, for the kind of, uh, the long haul. Um, you know, looking back at my childhood, um, there's a a couple key, key moments that really, um, you know, stick out to me, you know, as far as I can remember, you know, my mom and my dad never really being together. Like that's never a memory that I can remember them actually being together, being married. But, um, I do remember as it got to be about my first grade year, my mother joined the army. Um, uh, she would kind of bounced around from job to job and couldn't find anything solid. And she really wanted to do something. Uh, to support us, um, and and I have a, a brother, um, Brad, who is um, he's two years older than me, but we have different dads. She um, eventually got stationed in Germany, and that launched into a giant custody battle. Uh, my dad was a very responsible, hardworking, structured individual, and the obvious best place for me would have been with my father. But um, the court's tendency is to always place the child with the mother unless there's just a an absolute you know crazy circumstance that would would lead them to do otherwise but at that point I was going to be with my dad and um, my mom um, had me go out to lunch right before really they were going to make their decision and we had um, a lunch with my brother and she basically said well you don't want to leave your brother do you and you know, there's castles in Germany and, and basically said all the things to the, you'd want to tell a kid to make them want to go that way. And I just remember the biggest feeling having is that I didn't want to leave my brother, um, didn't want to leave my brother in that environment without me to be there with him. And I was, I think seven years old at that time. And, um, I went back and told the judge that I didn't want to go with my dad, as I had said previously, that I, that I wanted to go with my mom. And, and that was ended up being the ruling after all the time and money and everything that was spent on that custody battle. Um, and I remember leaving the courthouse that day at seven years old, six years old, whatever it was. And um, my dad looking down at me as we waited for the, the light to turn across the road, 
said, you know, I'm very disappointed in you. And that kind of set a pattern really for the rest of my life with my father that I uh, was kind of a, a, a disappointment. Um, and then when we moved to Germany, uh, my mom was still uh, with this abusive guy. He's the one that convinced her to join the army. Um, and when we moved to Germany, um, we lived in what's called the economy. So we didn't live on base. We lived um, in an apartment above a pub, and the pub was called Klaus's Pub. And um, my mom and, and her husband, Dave, would drink every night, um, and they would fight every night. And sometimes it would become abusive, and sometimes the screaming and the um, all those things got to be so bad. Uh, my brother and I would always wonder um, if, if it was going to be us next. And, and fortunately, um, we were never, um, you know, physically abused. Um, but, you know, I remember wanting to protect my mom, but only being you know, eight years old and, and small and having this desire to protect my mom and inability to do so. And it kind of developed feelings of cowardice um, that I wasn't able, you know, to protect my mom. Um, that all came to an end when uh, we started going to church. Um, and, uh, well, she, she left Dave. We moved on base. We started going to church, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and on Wednesdays. And every time the doors were open, we got involved and um, really began to experience um a sense of belonging and that went on for about a year um, and there was no drinking and it was like this stability in our lives it was like the calm and the storm of my life as I look back on it um, I remember coming home from school one day um, it was one of my last days of fourth grade and I came home and um, my mom had been you know free from drinking for a year free from partying our life was you know so much better I mean I came home and there was a beer sitting on the end table beside the couch and I looked at the beer and I looked at my mom and I knew that we were going back into that lifestyle um, and that all that peace and calm was over. I, I was old enough to equate beer with pain um, and you know my mom drinking beer and alcohol with pain and suffering for my brother and I and instability and and I remember being fueled and filled with with hatred and anger uh, towards my mother and I remember screaming at her and telling her that I hated her and that I wanted nothing to do with her and that I wanted to to move back um, you know to the states and I wanted to move in with my dad then um, when I moved in with my dad I used to go to church with my friend Blair and his mom and we would go to church and it would be fun and it would be fine but then we'd get in the car and his mom would gossip about everybody in the church all the way home and then she would pick us up and she actually gave us a ride to school on the days that the weather was bad and she would just gossip about people in the church the whole way to school and the whole way back. And I'm like, you people are ridiculous. And so what I did is I took a few Christians and I labeled all Christians as these few, right? And so in my mind, I had this core belief that all Christians were these gossipy, judgmental um, people. And so I hated them. And when we come back, we continue with this really raw and really real story. And it's Brian Dawson's story, here on Our American Stories.
And we're back here at Our American Stories, and we continue this remarkable story, again, one that comes close to home, as close as can be, right here on our own staff. Let's continue with Brian Dawson's story. Um, that summer I went back. So my mom moved back from Germany and she went to Colorado Springs. So I, I went and spent a summer with my mom in Colorado. Well, my brother was two years older than me and he had friends that were, you know, drinking beer and drinking liquor and going camping and smoking pot and doing all that kind of stuff. And I went out there and I'd never been exposed to any of that stuff personally, obviously seeing my mom drinking and things like that, but never personally. And, um, you know, I remember, you know, drinking a beer and then, you know, trying um, liquor. And the, the, the first first liquor I ever tasted was Hot Damn 100. And um, I was the little brother of not only my big brother, but that whole group. And I fit in. And, I, and, and the more I drank, the more I fit in. And the more I drank, the more comfortable I was in my own skin. You know, they call it liquid courage, but it was so much more than liquid courage for me. It was liquid I can actually deal with life. Um, everything in my life, I've always been very intense and very, um, all in whatever it was that I was doing. And, and I began to drink, you know, heavily, I was drinking tequila, whiskey, um, hot damn that whole summer. And, um, you know, the following summer I went back to Colorado and I started to smoke pot. And as I smoked pot, um, it was the same thing. You know, I, I just enjoyed not being who I guess I thought I was. You know, I, I eventually made it when I was 16 years old, I got my driver's license. I made a fake ID on a computer and um, I got to the point where I could go and buy liquor. And then I became very popular for that reason. So there was a lot of it was fitting in and, and all of those things. And I, I would go and I was able to, you know, buy liquor for these parties, which made me like the coolest person, you know, in the party. And, you know, I would drink to the point of blacking out once or twice a week. And this is as a 16 year old. And meanwhile, I was, you know, working a job at um, Dillon's, which is a, a Kroger store, and uh, playing football, playing baseball, and, and somewhat maintaining my grades. I went from a straight-A student to probably about a C student, um, and I just I stopped caring about school, which is interesting because up to that point when I started, you know, drinking and, and doing drugs, all I cared about was school. I, I got straight A's. I scored off the charts on all these tests, the standardized tests, and... Um, I didn't care about school anymore. All I cared about was the social aspect, the partying, the girls, um, and, and just, and, and being wasted basically. Um, the summer between my junior and senior year, I went out to Colorado and my brother was, um, a driver for a, I wouldn't say notorious, but a pretty big time drug dealer, um, in Colorado Springs. Uh, his name was Casey and, um, my brother had a driver's license and a nice truck. So Casey would just, you know, have him drive him around and, you know, they'd be dropping, you know, mostly pot, but you know, whatever around and the craziest things would happen, man. So I spent the whole summer riding around with them, you know, just seeing him be this, this alpha male that everyone looked up to and everyone respected. And he had money and he had girls and he had all these things. And I'm like, that's what I want to do. So I went back to, uh, Kansas that summer and, um, and here's the thing up to that point, I was excelling in football and I did really well in baseball too, but, um, I excelled in football and, um, we had a great football team that year and I was really coming into my own as a, a defensive end and, and, and a tight end on offense. And, um, we were expected to, to do really, really well that year. And I was so torn between really wanting to, to pour myself into football or pour myself into this party life. And, 
Um, I had tried cocaine when I was out there. So I was, I was really starting to do more serious drugs as I'm going into my senior year. And I started my senior year and I got about two weeks into it and I snuck out of the house and I went and tried ecstasy with some of my friends and a couple of the guys were actually um, football players on the team. And, um, I remember trying to sneak back in and I got caught and he told me that I had to quit football and go to rehab or I could quit football and go to, to Colorado, but I wasn't going to continue playing football. This is really when the resentment with my dad hit its peak. Um, and then kind of to give the narrative of my dad this whole time, again, him not being an emotional guy who, you know, says, hey, what's going on, Brian? Hey, you know, how are you feeling? How are you doing? Why are you doing this? It's, hey, I won't tolerate it. Not in this house. You ain't going to do that. Not my son. Those were kind of his ways of parenting was putting his foot down and yelling. Um, and, and again, you know, he didn't have a dad to, to teach him. So he, you know, he's a wonderful provider. He was at all my baseball games, all my football games, all my practices. Um, he got up at four 30 in the morning and went to work every day to make sure we had a house and things like that. So, um, I decided to quit football and move back to Colorado with my mom. And what that basically meant is I was on my own and I just started partying full blown. And I started working for Casey and started selling weed and um got involved in that lifestyle and then i started doing cocaine on a pretty regular basis and as i did cocaine i realized hey man i can't pay for cocaine selling weed so i started selling cocaine and i just had this knack and this ability to um rise to the top in these in these i guess you know drug dealer ladders uh of of influence um i just had a knack for for that life and um, so I started selling a little bit of Coke and next, you know, I was selling a lot of Coke and I was doing a lot of Coke and it got to the point, it was so bad. I would have to take Xanax to go to sleep and then I would wake up the next day and really the next evening at like four or five in the evening, I'd wake up, I'd blow my nose and snot and cocaine and blood would come out. My nose would just be bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. As soon as it would start to kind of slow down a little bit, I would do another line and start drinking. And then that was what I did. Um, and it got so bad to where I couldn't even like breathe out of my nose anymore. Um, my friend tried to introduce me to crack and, um, I'm like, this isn't for me. Um, so then, uh, he, um, he had me try, um, crystal meth and that was it. And once I did crystal meth, it was, um, there was no having to take Xanax to go to sleep. There was no drinking whiskey to mellow out. It was just, it was wide open. Um, and already at this point when I started doing meth, I already had, um, my first felony, uh, arrest, um, I was arrested with a half ounce of cocaine and, um, had bonded out and got probation and all those things and didn't slow me down. I, I continued to use drugs, continued to party, didn't go to my probation appointments, didn't do any of those things. And, um, I got to a point where I was very well known in Colorado Springs, um, for my ability to sell drugs and do a number of other things. And I remember getting a phone call from a girl named Camille and she said, um, I've got some pretty serious guys that I know, um, that want to talk to you about, you know, kind of you partnering with them or working with them. And so I came to her, her apartment and I walked into her apartment. I remember it, it was, um, kind of an uneasy feeling. And, um, there was, um, some very mean looking, um, dark, uh, nefarious looking, uh, individuals that were, uh, Hispanic guys, Mexican guys. And they had handkerchiefs on over their faces, and um, but they were in suits. It was weird. And I'm like, well, I'm either going to get killed or this is going to go really well. And, um, you know, they sat down and just talked to me and asked me a bunch of questions and asked me what I could do for them. And I think they were kind of new to coming into Colorado Springs to do what they, it was that they were wanting to do. And they needed somebody to help them. So 
um, they asked me to do that. And, and I did that. And, uh, not long after that, I ended up getting in a high speed chase with the cops and ran and I had a briefcase with meth and a pistol, got pulled over with that, got arrested, um, spent four and a half months in jail, county jail on that, got probation again, got out, went right back to it. Um, and by that time, um, a lot of my connections had either gone back to Mexico or had been arrested as well. And I got into, um, basically, I mean, I guess what it looked like was we would steal four wheelers and, uh, motorcycles and things like that and give them to Mexicans that were bringing them back across the border into Mexico. And then they would pay us in drugs. I was supposedly the, the ringleader of that whole thing. I don't know how true that was, but that's the way it was in the, in the cop's eyes. And, um, they busted a house that had some of those motorcycles in them. And, um, they, um, pressured the guy who was there and, and he told on me and said, you know, it was me. I was the one that was doing this. I was running all these rings. So, um, he and a bunch of other people had told the cops that I was responsible for, you know, all this crime that was going on. And, um, I eventually got arrested and I did another four months in county jail uh, and ended up bonding out after those four months. And in that time I got my discovery and it said that, you know, who had told on me, um, I was out, um, driving around up to no good. I'd been up for four days. Um, we drove by the guy's house who told on me, who was the main informant in the case. And, um, the guy I was with kept pumping me up. Oh no, we have to go in there. You know, we can't let him, you know, just let him tell on you and you not doing anything. And so we went, you know, went up to the front door, knocked on the door and he opened the door and, um, walked in the house and asked him why he told on me. And he said, you know, told me, well, I didn't tell on you, Brian, I would never tell on you. And, uh, I knew that he had, he was the informant in my case. So, um, I began to, to beat him up really, really bad. And, um, the guy I was with hit him in the head with a, a blunt force object. It was called a blackjack and it cracked his head open and I thought he was going to die. So, you know, we, um, we grabbed a few objects out of his house and we left. And by the time I got back to my house, um, I ended up getting arrested and charged with attempted murder, uh, aggravated robbery and extortion. And on top of all that, this was a a guy who was state's evidence, so he was an informant that I did all these things to, so that aggravated it. And my goodness, what a story. And when we come back, you won't believe where it turns and where it goes. Brian Dawson's story, one of our staffers here at Our American Stories. More after these messages. Turn to Brian Dawson's story here on Our American Stories, and let's pick up where we last left off. I was I was on the run. Uh, I bonded out again, and uh, I was out on like I don't know a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of bonds. And I was supposed to go to a court date, and I ended up not going to that court date, so I became a fugitive. And um, shortly after that, I became one of Colorado Springs' most wanted criminals, uh, most wanted fugitives. And it was intense. I mean, they were um, raiding houses. They were setting up perimeters all throughout Colorado Springs. As I don't know if you've ever seen them, like they basically have roads blocked off and they're showing pictures of me to every car that stops and goes through there. Um, if you ever follow Dog the Bounty Hunter, um, Dog the Bounty Hunter did most of his shows in Colorado Springs. Some in Hawaii, but most of them were in Colorado Springs. And Dog the Bounty Hunter was on a 72-hour, 72 72-fugitive 72 sweep when I was on the run. 
and he said he wasn't going to go after me because I was supposedly, you know, too threatening or, or menacing or whatever for him to go after me. Um, so it got, it became very real. And, um, there was a couple near misses where they, they almost had me and I was able to escape from them. And then, um, they finally caught me and I was in my safe, I guess you call it a safe house. Um, it was a third story apartment in Colorado Springs and they finally closed in on me and, I remember sitting in the apartment that day. I was watching the Chappelle show. It was my last day out, July 19th, 2007. I'm watching the Chappelle show, cooking bratwurst in this apartment, and I look out the window, and I'm on the third story, and I see the front end of a cop car, and I know that it's a cop car, and I knew that was it. I just knew. I knew, um, okay, well, this is it. And um, there wasn't much in the apartment, but there was a recliner that was wider than the window was. So I'd taken a uh, nylon rope, a rappelling rope, and I tied it to the bottom of the recliner. Um, and I hear the door pounding. Carter Springs police open up, and they're kicking in doors, making their way down to me. So I kick out the window and wrap my, my hand around the rope, and I jump out the window. And the recliner sticks and wedges right in the window just like I wanted it to. And, and as I'm hanging there around both sides of this apartment building, these police come flooding, and there's 40 or 50 cops made up of El Paso County Sheriff's deputies, Colorado Springs Police Department. They come pouring around the side with their guns pulled and drawn on me. You know, get on the ground, get on the ground, get the F on the ground. And I'm like, well, I don't know where else I'm going to go. And I look up, and there's cops, you know, cops above me, cops below me. So um, I pulled up a little bit on the rope, unwrapped the rope with my hand, and dropped. And I dropped three stories, and I landed. And it's a miracle that I didn't get hurt there, but... I landed and rolled, and then there was um, two canine units right there with the dogs barking in my face. Um, I, and I remember laying there, and I could feel the heat from the dogs. And I'm just like, <laughs> these dogs uh, don't bite me. But that was it. And um, an officer stuck his knee in my back and cuffed me. And um, they put me in the back of the cop car. And the craziest thing is I remember the relief that I had as I sat in the back of that cop car because I knew it was all over. I remember Rihanna's... Um, umbrella song was on in the cop car as we were heading you know to county jail i just had a sense of peace for whatever reason and um and i, I ended up getting into um county jail where i would find out um, that i was facing 384 years in prison and um with facing that much time i started to to get involved in with some some rough groups in, in the jail thinking that i'm going away to prison for the rest of my life I have to make a name for myself. I have to be tough. I have to be this this guy, this prison guy. So I get into a bunch of fights. Um, you know, I'm going up to these older kind of gangster guys, and they're saying, "Well, I need you to go beat this guy up, and I need you to go beat that guy up." So I'm doing these things, and I eventually end up in administrative segregation, uh, which is when you are in a concrete cell. Um, it's about eight foot by twelve foot. And there's a bunk in there. There's a metal bunk with a fire retardant mattress and a fire retardant pillow and a sink that is attached to a toilet. It's a one-piece toilet sink and a desk. And that's it. That's all you have in there. And I was in there for 23 hours a day, and I would get one hour where I could go make a phone call, take a shower, and I would go back in my cell. And I was there for several months. And in that time frame that I was in administrative segregation, I had um, a revelation. It was one of the, it was an epiphany. It was an aha moment. Um, uh, and it was, and it, and it seems silly, but it, it was, it was, it was huge. Um, and I, and as I look back on it, it's the point as I try and counsel people who have been through these things before, 
or that are going through these things now, because people come to me because I've been through them before, they ask me, you know, what would you tell them? And this was the one thing that happened. And I'm sitting in administrative segregation um, in this in this cell by myself. Been there for a couple months, and all of a sudden I realized this is my fault. This is all my fault. And I know that seems silly, or it sounds, you know, stupid or whatever. But really, no, this is all my fault because up to that point. I blamed it on my mom. I blamed it on my dad. I blamed it on the judges. I blamed it on um, basically um, everyone but me. I blamed it on corrupt system, you know, all the district attorneys. I mean, you name it. I blamed everybody. But then all of a sudden I realized this is my fault. And it was so liberating and it was so freeing because I realized if my choices created this circumstances, Certainly, I could make better choices that would create better circumstances. And I, and, I, and I came to this realization that my choices are what create my circumstances, not the other way around. I wasn't a victim that I'd created these circumstances through my choices. And from that moment forward, I made a decision that I was going to do things differently. And I did. And it wasn't easy. Uh, I had habits. I had, you know, thought patterns. I had all these things that were wrong. But I knew that I could make better choices and I was responsible for my choices. And I, and I started doing that from that moment. Um, I got on the phone, I called my grandma with tears in my eyes, um, and told her that, that I was going away forever. And, and she said, you know, I can tell there's been a huge change in your life, Brian. I can't put my finger on it. I don't know what it is, but I can tell there's something very different about you. Um, because up to this point, they all cut me off. I burned every bridge in my family. They were done with me. She said, we're going to get you an attorney. And, um, she did. And the next day I, I went to court, um, someone that was supposed to show up to the court court date to be a witness in my trial. If I went to trial that day, didn't show up. So they had to postpone it for two weeks. Total miracle. The attorney was able to take my case and get me into what's called a mediation hearing. And what a mediation hearing is, is where you basically go into arbitration with your sentence. And it's like a used car sales. Well, I'll give you this. Well, no, we want that. Well, I'll give you this. And no, we want that. And they started at 32 years and I started at eight years and a mediator went back and forth between the district attorney and my lawyer and I back and forth, back and forth. And they finally came down to a 15 year sentence with a crime of violence sentence enhancer. And I told them, I don't, um, I, I, I don't want that sentence enhancer. I don't want to be labeled a violent criminal. I don't want to go to some, you know, hardcore prison and end up with swastikas all over my face and turn into that guy. I want to change my life. I want a chance at changing my life. I said, tell her I'll give her a year if she drops that crime of violence. So I ended up getting sent sentenced to 16 years and they dropped the crime of violence. Um, and I went back to my cell after that mediation and I knew that God had moved in my life. So, um, I went from there, um, I got sentenced. I got sentenced to 16 years. And then I went to the Denver reception and diagnostic center. This is a maximum security prison and you roll up in a van and there's rolls upon rolls of razor wire. There's gun towers with armed guards in the gun towers. Um, they've got, um, these little mirrors that go under the vans that see if there's bombs under the vans. And it's just, it was very sobering. It was very real that, Hey, I'm in prison. Um, that's happening now. Um, and I went in there and I was there for a little while and they sent me to my first, um, first facility in Werfano County Correctional Center. It was Walsenburg, Colorado, and it was, uh, a private prison. Um, and there's a lot of, um, bad things that, that surround the idea of private prisons, but I had nothing but a very positive experience there. Um, it was very evident that everybody there, um, that was involved with the staff members there from our case managers to the teachers and things like that, um, that they wanted criminals to, to be rehabilitated and they had a lot of programs. So 
um, I immediately started taking programs. I got my GED um, while I was at Walsenburg, and then I started taking college classes, and then I became uh, a guy that helped other guys get their GED, um, and that's what I did for work in there as I was a tutor, and I helped people get their GEDs. And when we come back, the final installment of this remarkable story, one that hits close to home, our own Brian Dawson. His story continues here on Our American Stories. Brian Dawson's story and what a story it is and again this one hits close to home he's one of our people and by the way it just shows you that anything can happen in a person's life here he is in prison and he's already you can hear it he's a changed guy and he wants to just get through this and come out on the other side and so he's reoriented himself and his life right there in what may be the very worst place in America to be as a young man Let's return to Brian's story. I was there for about nine months, but the very first person I met when I walked into Walsenburg was a guy by the name of Charles Frederick. And he comes up to me, he's this big guy, big burly guy. And he says, hey, my name's Charles and I'm a Christian and this is a faith pod. So in these prisons, they had these um, pods, they're called faith pods. And it was basically pods or units made up of about 120 inmates and it was dedicated to discipleship. And I don't know how I landed in there, why I landed in there. Um, but I was there, and Charles began to just tell me about Christ, tell me about who Jesus was, tell me about the gospel. I told him, Charles, I don't want to hear that stuff. You know, um, I don't care. Um, and, you know, he, he just said, okay. And then we, he began to talk to me about other things. And he met my physical needs. He gave me coffee. He gave me shorts. He gave me, you know, things that, you know, you get in there, you got nothing other than a couple pairs of underwear and, and a green suit. So he helped me um, with some of those things and just became my friend. And, and as conversation would permit, he would tell me about Christ. And that would go on for about nine months. He got shipped to another prison. Um, I left that prison. They shut that prison down. Um, and my security level dropped. And I bounced around a little bit for a couple of years. And then I ended up in Sterling Correctional Facility in Sterling, Colorado. The first person I see, there's Charles again. And he starts telling me about Jesus Christ again. And um, I'm like, man, I don't want to hear this stuff. Well... Um, we're there for a little bit, and he goes, hey, you know, you got parole coming up in a couple of years. It would be good for you to have some certificates um, to, um, you know, show the parole board. Uh, I'm like, okay. And he goes, well, I'm, I'm the chaplain's assistant. I can get you in some programs. I'm like, okay, yeah, go ahead, sign me up. So um, he signs me up, and uh, they end up being faith-based programs. And I'm like, oh, I hate you, Charles. But the very first program I went into was a um, uh, come as you are. We love everybody, you know, Muslim, Buddhist, Christian, whatever, just come as you are. And I went there. And it was, it was okay, but I experienced fellowship and I met other Christians that were like Charles who were true, genuine Christians who lived this out. Um, they didn't just say they were Christians with their mouth. They lived it. And, and you could see the wisdom and things that they had. And I was, I was attracted to that. 
And um, that went on for about 13 weeks. That class was over, and then Charles got me into another program called The Truth Project, um, which is put out by Focus on the Family and, and Dr. Del Tackett. Amazing program. But when I got in there, it was not come as you are. It was, this is what the Bible says. Um, and I didn't like that. And I would sit, we would watch a video for an hour, and then we would have table discussion. And at the table discussion, I would argue with everyone there and tell them how stupid they were for believing what they, you know, th- that they believe these things. And I almost got into a couple of fights with those guys. And um, about three weeks into it, we were walking back to the unit. And Charles just asked me, he says, Brian, why don't you just give him a chance? And I'd been asked that question before and, 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 and fought it and fought it and fought it. And for whatever reason, I said, okay, Charles. So um, I went back to my cell that night and um, I prayed, okay, God, if I need to believe these things to have a relationship with you, give me some kind of a sign. And I went to bed that night and I remember being in a really deep sleep and I had a nightmare. And in that nightmare, I fell off of a cliff and I woke up startled out of a nightmare and kind of, <gasps> and I looked and um, it's really dark in the cells and we had, we're allowed to have digital clocks in there. And, and the digital clock with the red numbers in the cell said 316. The only Bible verse I'd ever known as a kid um, at all was John 316. And if you know John 316, it answers the question that I asked him. That's exactly right. Yes, you do need to believe those things. And I tried to go back to sleep and just brush it off. But I've, I, I looked back at the clock and I felt like it was 316 for like 30 minutes. And I'm like, okay, maybe there's something to this. And uh, it was a Sunday morning at 316. So I got up and, and I went to uh, went to the church services that they offered in the prison. And um, I went and found my friend Ramon. I always had this idea in my head that Christians were weak. And my friend Ramon was a big black um, former gangbanger that had become a Christian and there was nothing soft or weak about this guy. So I'm like, okay, I'll go with him. And I'm sitting in the very back row in the very far side as he goes through the sermon. And at the end of the sermon, um, the pastor does what he calls an invitation. I look at Ramon and I say, what's an invitation? And he goes, uh, he didn't say, oh, that's where you go make a decision for Christ or you invite Jesus in your heart. He didn't say any of that stuff. He said, if you've got something in your life that's hindering your relationship with God, you can go up there and pray with that man about it. So I went up there and um, I prayed with uh, Chaplain Davis. And to, to tell you a little about him, he's a um, a hard man, a calloused man, a cowboy. He's a man's man. He's a prison chaplain. And he doesn't do hugs. He doesn't do any of those kind of things. And, and he grabbed my, my hand to pray and I could feel the calluses on his hands. And he slaps me on the shoulder with his other hand and he says, how can I pray for you? And I told him, I said, look, you know, I don't, I'm not here to make any decisions. I just, I need you to pray that God would remove this callus from my heart because it's hardened and it's angry and it's angry towards Christians. So I, I want him to soften my heart so that the truth can come in. And Chaplain Davis prayed that. And I remember looking up after we were done praying and he's in front of 130 inmates with tears pouring down his face. And um, I knew something was very real about this and I didn't know how to describe it, but it was... It was, it was very real. <clears throat> and I would later find out that Chaplain Davis and Charles had been praying for me for about a year and a half um, that I would get saved. And from that moment forward, I began to read my Bible. Uh, I read my Bible every single day. I would get up and read my Bible, read my Bible. I was at every single church service that they offered, any faith-based program they had in that prison. I was there. There was a huge change. I went from telling these people they were stupid for believing what they did to absolutely believing it basically overnight. And, and, and following that up um, with my behavior, following the change of heart that I had. Uh, that went on for about a year. And uh, my friends all had pen pals that they were writing when they were in prison. 
So I prayed and said, all right, God, um, I'd like to have a pen pal. And I got on the phone with my mom and she was running a Facebook page for me. She says, you got a friend request from a girl. I'm like, okay, cool. Who is it? And she goes, do you know a girl named uh, Christina Ewan? I'm like, yeah, I know Christina Ewan. Um, why? And she goes, well, she sent you a friend request. She remembered you and that she's been trying to find you for, you know, on and off for the last 10 years. I said, did you tell her I was in prison? Yeah, I told her you were in prison. She doesn't care. She wants to write you. I'm like, well, that's crazy. So I got her address and <clears throat> everything we did, all of our correspondence was based on Christ and what God was doing in our lives. And that was it. And that went on for several months. And um, I just knew that this was, you know, too crazy for it not to be God lining this up for something bigger. But I was scared to death because she's rejected me so many times in the past. And I had to write a letter and I sat down and wrote this letter and said, look, you know, I just, I, I feel like, you know, this, this is kind of something that may be meant to be and that, that, you know, I know it's asking a lot of you, but, um, that, that maybe we could ride this out together and, and get married when I get out type of, um, you know, this is meant for something more. And, um, I get the letter back and I remember hearing it at mail call and seeing that the letter was from Christina, knowing that the answer was going to be inside of that envelope. And I opened the envelope and pulled out the letter and began to read it. And in the very first paragraph, she said, Brian, I've been thinking the exact same things. And I know God wants me to be with you and that I'm supposed to be here for you through this time. And that, you know, that we're, we're meant to be together. Um, and I remember reading that sitting in prison and I mean, I could have floated up the steps to go back to my cell. It was, um, it was amazing. So, um, but I put in for a halfway house about six months after that. So I ended up getting accepted to that program. Um, my very first time putting in for a halfway house, which almost never happens with um, the severity of my sentence and the size and scope of my sentence. Um, I got out my very first time um, putting in. And, um, so it was, it was a very, very tough two years, but I graduated. Um, and, uh, Christina was there for the graduation and the first visit I was allowed to go on actually before I graduated, um, <clears throat> Christina and I, um, got married we got, we eloped, I guess you could say we got married at my grandma's house. Um, and, uh, a pastor that used to come to the prisons, um, did my, my marriage ceremony. So it was him and his wife and my grandma were the only ones there at the wedding. And my mom was on speakerphone. And <laughs> so, my wife and I now have um, three daughters, plus my stepson, Brennan, who's an absolute stud, um, brilliant, smart kid, um, does very well in sports. My girls are um, three years old, uh, is Gracie, two-year-old is Reagan, and our one-year-old uh, is Abigail, and we have another one on the way. So not only um, do I have, and this is kind of a cool um, caveat to the story. I've got a little piece of property with a, you know, little house, um, and, a, you know, the wife of my dreams and beautiful children, uh, four beautiful children about to be five, but I just moved my mom's, um, she has a camper and I just moved her camper onto my property and my mom, who I had obviously all that resentment and animosity towards, she now lives on my property and she's Mima to the kids. And she got saved about two years ago and she's a completely different person. So, um, again, like you, I could not have sat in jail, um, you know, five, six, seven years ago, whatever it was and said, okay, in five or 10 years, this is what I want. Um, and ever thought it would be what it is now. And what a story folks. And uh, I'm tearing up here because I know Brian and, and to, to imagine that that can happen in people's lives. Anyone listening, having someone in prison someplace 
that you just don't think they can come back from. My goodness, it's possible. And we do faith-based stories here, folks. We don't shy away from it. There are all kinds of things that can get people out of a jam. And sometimes it's God, and sometimes it's a, it's a secular counselor. Um, but we don't shy away from the, the religious aspect of people's lives here on this show. We don't preach, we don't proselytize, but we don't remove it. And my goodness, Brian Dawson's story is unimaginable without God. And send your stories, by the way, if you have a story like this, and I know you do, because my goodness, this country is filled with stories like this, and we're, we're tired of the negative stories. We want to hear stories of real hope, not the silly kind, the rugged kind. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Brian Dawson's story, a beautiful family, a beautiful story of love and redemption, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and we love to share stories of random acts of kindness that are being done all across this country. And one of our producers, Faith, recently spoke with Dave Cutlip, the owner of Southside Tattoo Shop in Maryland. However, this is no ordinary tattoo shop. Take it away, Faith. We have all made mistakes. Some are big, and some are small. But most of our mistakes, people don't know about. But for some... Everyone can see, especially when they are tattooed on their body. People change, and thankfully they can change for the better. But not everyone can get there by themselves. Those with gang and racist-related tattoos find themselves ostracized from society. However, in comes Redemption, Inc., a nonprofit organization that is helping people start over. They do this by removing gang-related and racist tattoos for free. And there's no catch. Here is Dave Cutlip, owner of Southside Tattoo Shop in Brooklyn Park, Maryland, explaining how it all got started. I helped start it. I'm not going to take all the credit for it because it was probably more my wife, to be honest with you. And what had happened was a guy came in and he had tattoos on his face. And he asked if we could uh, help him get rid of them. And uh, he was willing, and he was willing to pay, you know. But what I told him was, I could cover that tattoo, but it would be covered with something bigger, and, and it's not going to do what you want it to do. And so we discussed lasers. But the bottom line was, I really could see the hurt, you know, that this guy was going through because he had done this, you know, gotten these tattoos, and that he needed. He just wanted to. Uh, do his job and not have people follow him or you know and and i could see that and so my wife kind of looked at me and said you know you can help people and so we made the post and this post that we made i think that was on january something it was mid-january um and we basically said if you have hate or uh racist tattoos gang or racist tattoos that we will, you know, help you remove them, no questions asked, cover them up, whatever. And 
it went viral. And to the point where, like, I had to turn off notifications on my phone. So did my wife. My wife, she didn't even know what viral meant. She was just like, what's going on? You know, and I was explaining to her. I said, hey, this thing, you you know, the post you just did is going viral. And she thought, she was like, how did I get a virus? You know, like, she didn't even know oh, what viral was. So they needed some help. Once that happened, I'd say, you know, we probably got 1,000 inquiries to uh, get help. Then we saw that that there was a need, and we started Redemption, Inc. Um, We had someone help us build the website, and I had to actually get somebody to help me answer emails and phone calls and stuff because uh, there were so many of them. At first, we called it Random Acts of Tattoo, she kind of shortened it, you know, to Redemption Inc. because it was, it's less to say than random acts of tattoo, if that makes sense. That's what we decided to do and name it. And, um, it just, and, and then that took off, actually. This random act of kindness is changing people's lives, giving them greater opportunity to face life without judgment from those around them. What is usually their demeanor as they come in to ask for this? You service? know, I, the bottom line is everybody's been extremely appreciative. I, that that much I can definitely say. You know, how they're feeling or, like, a lot of them are, are, are scared because, number one, they're, they're going to get tattooed. Number two, they don't really know me. And a few of them even travel from far away so far. So, and, by the way, so far I've helped, personally helped 22 people. I try to do at least one a week, sometimes two yeah, they're, at first they're a little scared, but then once I get them, you know, in my chair, I talk to them like people, and, and you know, I, I get to hear the story behind it. And most of them were, I would have to say, you know, ashamed that they did it, but they also felt that they had to do it because of circumstances, either economic or, you know, physical, whatever that's going on in their life. And I can give you an example, like, Somebody maybe getting in trouble with drugs, ending up in jail, and to protect themselves, they need to either, most of them, join a gang. And most of them, they were white supremacist gangs. It, the sad thing about jail is that, you know, you're segregated to begin with. It's definitely segregated. And if you're not with somebody, you're usually, uh, you know, a victim. And who wants to live life as a victim? When these people have come to you and you provide this service, are you able to keep up with them and what happens afterwards? Yeah, it's a couple of them. Yeah, sure. A, a couple of them have, you know, continued to call or email and, and you know, they tell us, you know, how good things are going for them. And, you know, I have a whole door full of thank you notes and, and just kind letters from people that, that appreciate what I'm doing. And it, and it does, it definitely makes me feel good. I've actually never done a gang or racist tattoo in 20-something years of tattooing. You know, people people do feel that they have to, I guess, and so, you know, me helping them, that's a good thing. They need my help. Someone's got to do it. You know, I have something that I can give somebody, and so, you know, be, doing that definitely makes me feel good. I Like, I definitely don't have to do it, but I feel like I need to do it because nobody else is doing it. Of course, getting a sketchy tattoo removed can be embarrassing. You know, when they come in my shop, the first thing 
that we do is we make them feel comfortable and, and we tell them, hey, like, make yourself comfortable. You need something to drink. Like, you're, like, I don't care that he has a swastika or whatever they have. That's not, we're here to, you know, fix that situation. And, and for example, if some, you know, I've had a few media, if they don't want to be involved in that, then I, they're, my first priority is definitely their safety. And when we come back, more of Dave Cutlip's story here on Our American Stories. And again, if you have a random act of kindness story, and by the way, this is not a big story. He's not changing the world, but he's changing the world for already 22 people. And boy, that's a game changer for those people who made a mistake and maybe thought it was unreversible. And it is. Send your stories to us. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org and we'll try and get them on the air. When we come back, more of Dave's story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We've been listening to Faith's conversation with Dave Cutlip, a tattoo shop owner who removes gang and racist-related tattoos for free. And we pick up with Dave talking about the people who come to receive his service and how he tries to make them as comfortable as possible and that his first priority is their safety. A lot of these gangs are even racist people. They're... They get mad when people quit, and and it really is true. You know, blood in, blood out. Like a lot of these people, they can't just, you know, you can't just wake up one morning and say, "I don't feel like doing this anymore." It doesn't work that way. They can get hurt, so we definitely try and protect them. We don't tell people, you know, we don't announce, "Hey, covering up a big swastika tattoo today." You know what I mean? Like, like we don't do that, so that they come when they do come here, they don't know any of us, but we make sure that. Hey, we're here. Here's my hand. Sadly, tattoos can also be used to mark people as property. So far, most of the people that I've helped, I would say 80% of them were, you know, in jail. The other people, um, and it's usually like, say, like a woman or something, and they got involved with a guy that was involved in white supremacy type stuff, and, you know, they, those guys kind of, I guess it's a... Uh, uh, a big deal to tag somebody, you know, or I, I, it, it never made sense to me. Like, you know, if you have a girlfriend or a dog or, <laughs> you know, like you don't tattoo them and say property up. Like nobody should be property of anybody. And, and you know, these people get these tattoos because they feel like they need to. You know, it's almost out of a, a necessity or, or even scare because, they, you know, if they say no, that this then this person might not like them anymore. You know, people want to be accepted. Everybody wants to be accepted. Maybe, and I talk to them when, when we're tattooing, so I get it out of them. And they, uh, so far, everybody's, you know, felt really bad about what they've done or felt, you know, the shame uh, of uh, even hating somebody, you know? And, and I think that's a cool thing. And I'm sorry that they feel that way, but it's cool that they they do, you know, I'm there to witness and, and to realize, hey, I made a mistake. 
More of us could use to admit that we have made mistakes. These folks are honest about how they have felt bad for what they've done or how they felt towards others, but also honest about their desire to change. And many of the stories are actually very similar. I mean, <laughs> to be honest with you, the sad thing is they're all like they're all, you know, pretty much the same. And and you know they either went to jail or with or was with somebody. And, um, you know, of course, part of the thing was I didn't want them. You know, if they want to tell me, then they can. But we don't. I don't make anybody say anything. You know, because they've already been judged enough. I have so far seen a couple of the people that I've tattooed moved on and, and you know they get one guy got a job that he was trying to get but couldn't because he had white power on his arms and one of the kids Brandon that I tattooed he's engaged now and getting ready to get married and, and you know he uh he he actually was a, a really cool guy to tattoo it was really fun he, he traveled a little bit to uh come see us but he was extremely actually i think he traveled from new york city but he was extremely nice and and you know when he talked to some of the media people he he explained how he felt the shame of of having to do what he had to do but if he didn't do that you know it was more being a victim again and and again who wants to be a victim and these people are truly making attempts to change but Unfortunately, not everyone is so convinced. It's all been uh, pretty fun, and, and um, everybody's been extremely appreciative. I do not believe that one person so far that I've helped uh, did not actually change. You know what I mean? Like, like when I'm talking to them, I can tell that that you know they're about moving on and, and going to school or just moving on with their lives. And so you were shocked by all of the media attention, weren't you? Absolutely. I had not clue that it was going to happen that way. Uh, it just, wow. <laughs> like even the, the stuff going viral, and then, you know, I had to actually even stop like looking at some of the comments that some of the people were saying because, you know, not everybody there. The sad thing is whenever you do something to help somebody, there's always going to be somebody that says, hey, that these people made a mistake and they don't deserve help. It's sad that that these people believe that. I didn't want to see those things, so I had to separate myself from it. It's kind of sad. You know, in my mind, forgiving somebody is, is more important, you know, to, and, and I don't understand why somebody wouldn't want to forgive somebody, especially if they haven't hurt you or anybody you know or, you know, why wouldn't you forgive this guy? Why can't he get a good job? Or, you know, why doesn't he deserve to have a, a, a wife and kids and, you know, just because he made a mistake 10 years ago? Have there been times where you've gotten emotional when helping someone? It hasn't been, like, emotional, like, helping somebody. It's usually... What happened basically was the media, some, some media station was asking me some questions. It, one of the questions, it, it kind of got to me and, and you know, and it, it kind of it gave me a wow moment. Well, you're changing lives. You know, <laughs> I'd like to say that I'm not changing lives. I'm just changing tattoos because, uh, like, these people, 
these people, they, they've already done the work. You know what I mean? Like, I, I shouldn't be getting credit for the, what the, the work that these people put in. I kind of feel that what I'm doing is the last step. You know, it, it's the last little piece of chain that's keeping them down. If we cover that tattoo up, send them on their way, they've already made the changes. They've already done, you know, put the work in. So I'm just, you know, helping them remove obstacles let's just say that I, I i'm comfortable with that <laughs> i help them remove obstacles they I, I believe that the people that uh and i truly really believe that that they've already done what they needed to do i didn't help them change they did it themselves I, i've tried to stay as humble as i possibly can like you know i have had people come up to me and you know, like, oh my God, you're the guy on Facebook or whatever, you know, and, and it, it does, you know, it puts a smile to my face, but like I said, you know, I'm just the last guy, I'm just the last guy in line, and for some reason, I got picked, you know what I mean? Like, like <laughs> I got picked to be that guy that, is, so to speak, helping people, and, and when in fact they've done the work already. But someone has to do it. I got to say that someone has to do it. Have you guys expanded? Are there other places doing this? Are you trying to get other places involved? Yes, actually. Yes to all those. Um, when we made the website, we actually got a few other people, you know, that, that would call us up. And um, in fact, on the website, there's a spot where you can actually sign up to help. Say you're a tattoo artist or a laser uh, operator in, in a state, like, if you want to help us, like, we definitely need the help. We definitely appreciate, uh, the, you know, the, the, the assistance. Uh, another thing that we do also is we check these people out. And, and not saying that I'm better than somebody else. I kind of believe that, like, for example, if someone in Indiana needs help, well, of course, that's, you know, pretty far away from Maryland. And, you know, they're not going to come here. But if I have somebody in, in Indiana that can help them, then I'll send them to them. But I also want to be able, you know, to feel good in my head that this person is, hey, number one, you know, going to be give them a good service. So we actually look, look at their websites, look at their work. And, hey, if I'll get tattooed by this person, then I'll let somebody else. We take a look at things like that to make sure that people are going to be safe. We could all use to learn from Dave, his wife, and all those helping with Redemption, Inc. Whether that be through tattoo service, donation, or simply learning to forgive and not judge those around us. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories. And thanks for that story, and thank you, Dave, for what you're doing. By the way, anyone listening who wants to help out Dave and help people out who just made a really bad decision at some point in their life or just a really practical one, especially guys, inmates, my goodness, you got to choose sometimes. Not in a gang, you're going to get beat. you got to pick one. RedemptionInc.org is where you go. RedemptionInc, and that's I-N-K, dot org. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Dave Cutlip's story, Redemption Inc.'s story, here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, where we love to tell you stories about the things that matter in your life. From sports to the arts, and that's music and movies, straight through to history and to the personal. And by the way, from the personal, we mean, well, love and death and marriage. Stories that make you think or laugh or cry. That's what we do here. No screaming, no yelling. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. This next story is so bizarre that most people think it's an urban legend, even though it's very much a true story. This is the tale of Lawn Chair Larry. Here's Jesse. Larry Walters had always dreamed of flying. By the age of 13, on a visit to an Army-Navy surplus store, he saw several empty weather balloons hanging from the store's ceiling and thought that it would be an interesting way to attain flight. When he came of age, he enlisted in the United States Air Force with the hope of finally learning to fly. However, it was discovered that he had poor eyesight, thus killing his flight career before it could even begin. After leaving the Air Force, Walters began to hatch his plan. His idea was to attach a couple of helium-filled weather balloons to a lawn chair, then cut away an anchor and float above his own backyard at a height of about 30 feet for just a couple of hours. 33-year-old Larry Walters was now living in North Hollywood and working as a truck delivery man for a film production company when he invested $4,000 in his project, purchasing nearly four dozen surplus weather balloons. Under the guise of being for use in filming a television commercial, he also purchased compressed helium cylinders, a sturdy aluminum lawn chair from Sears, and various other bits of equipment for the flight. Walters even learned how to skydive and planned on wearing a parachute for the flight, just in case. The night before the launch of a short test flight of the contraption, Walters and several friends met up at the San Pedro home of Carol Van Dusen, Larry's then-girlfriend. The crew inflated balloons throughout the night and rigged together the chair and assorted equipment. At 11 o'clock in the morning of July 2nd, 1982, Walters sat atop his lawn chair under his towering apparatus, christened Inspiration One. Four tiers of helium balloons, over 40 in total, rose tall above him. The flight plan called for Walters and his balloons to fly out over Long Beach and 300 miles east towards the Mojave Desert. He was equipped with an altimeter, a parachute, a life jacket in case of a water landing, a two-liter bottle of Coca-Cola, a sandwich, and a Citizens Band CB walkie-talkie radio. He also carried a BB gun pistol. His idea was to shoot the balloons one by one to gently lower his altitude when it was time to come down. Now tethered to the ground by three lines tied up to the bumper of a jeep, Walters waited with anticipation as the ropes were to be cut. But after his girlfriend cut one of the tethers holding the craft to the ground, the other two ropes snapped suddenly. The balloons and Walters and his lawn chair were rocketed skyward. Would you like to ride in my his eyeglasses ripped from his face, and he was soaring upwards at an alarming rate. He had only expected to attain a flight level of 100 feet off the ground. Using the CB radio that he had brought along for the ride, he radioed his girlfriend on the ground. Here's the actual audio from that fateful flight. Ron, cut him down. Larry, cut him down. You've got to come down if you can't see. Cut him down. 
I've got my other glasses. I can see perfectly. Don't worry. You copy over. I copy. Are you sure you're okay? There's planes up there. We can hear them. Are you okay? I'm okay. I'm going through a thin fog layer. Over. My altitude's 1,500 feet. See marine land right now. Okay, you can see marine land. So you're heading toward. Oh my God, you're going towards the ocean already. Fearing that he might unbalance the load, he didn't dare shoot any of the balloons with his BB gun. Instead, he spent about two hours up in the sky at 16,000 feet, over three miles high. From San Pedro, Walters and his balloons began to drift over Long Beach and cross the primary approach path of Long Beach Airport. airline pilots from both TWA and Delta reported seeing him to the control tower. Walters grabbed his CB radio again, this time using Channel 9, the designated emergency channel, and attempted to notify the tower. They were in disbelief of what they were hearing. Now shivering in the thin, high-altitude air, Walters finally used his BB gun to start popping balloons in order to lower his altitude. Now descending... He aimed as best he could to land at the Virginia City Country Club in Long Beach, but he came down just short of the golf course and headed into a residential neighborhood. He dumped out the gallon jugs of water tied to the lawn chair to slow his landing, but on the way down, his balloons draped over a set of power lines. Left dangling five feet off the ground, the police had to shut down electricity in Long Beach for 20 minutes in order for Walters to safely climb out of his contraption down and into the backyard of a house in Long Beach. He was immediately arrested by waiting members of the Los Angeles Police Department. When asked by a reporter why he had done it, Walters replied, quote, A man can't just sit around. The Federal Aviation Administration was initially baffled by the incident, and Walters had been catapulted unexpectedly and unprepared from obscurity to national fame. In December of 1982, Walters was accused by the FAA of committing several violations of the Federal Aviation Act. The resulting fines totaled $4,000. Walters went on to tour as a motivational speaker after his flight. He quit his job as a truck driver, but was never able to make much money from his fame. Walters even accepted invitations to appear on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and Late Night with David Letterman. We're delighted to have this gentleman with us tonight. Please welcome Larry Walters. This is a phenomenal thing. Where did you get the idea to do this? Uh, when did it hit you? You said it was a 20-year dream? Yes, sir. Uh, it hit me when I was a uh, young boy, about 13 years old. I was in an Army Navy surplus store. So a weather balloon dangling from the ceiling. And I just got the idea uh, to put, uh, to inflate these balloons. And I figured if I had enough of them, it'd lift me. Uh-huh. The idea was just, you know, the float. Yeah. And I was fascinated by it, and I fulfilled the 20-year dream. But Larry Walters never found happiness. Later on in his life, Walters hiked into the San Gabriel Mountains and shot himself in the heart. He left no suicide note. And that's the story of Lawn Chair Larry. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. When he was a young man, he dreamed of flying high. He dreamed of flying far above his home and through the clear blue sky. I've got my other glasses. I can see perfectly. Don't worry. Larry Edward 
vision The Air Force turned him down Just a minor setback One day he'll float above this town I'm A-OK, I'm going through a thin fog layer, over My altitude's 1,500 feet Sea marine line right now And just a great job, Jesse. And, you know, the thing about Americans is we're always trying to test boundaries. And we love aviation stories here on Our American Stories. And you want to hear a stem winder about a couple of crazy guys who tested some boundaries? Listen to David McCullough on our show and his book, The Wright Brothers. These were two crazy guys tinkering with air travel long before anyone else could get up in the air. These two bicycle mechanics were doing it. In the fields of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, they were crazy, they were wild, they were unqualified, and they did it. And that's what Americans do. They do crazy things in their spare time. We cover those stories, the famous ones like the Wright Brothers, and the sort of kind of famous ones like Lawn Chair Larry. Lawn Chair Larry's story, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for one of our favorite regular segments, Life Lessons, from Dr. Bob. Dr. Robert Shillman doesn't go by his formal name. I didn't want to be called Dr. Shillman. It sounded to me too pretentious. So he goes by just Dr. Bob. I have a, uh, a sort of comedic streak about me. An unusual name to call someone. But Dr. Bob isn't your ordinary guy. I'd like to do things in a funny, different way. A memorable way. With only $86,000, he started this little company called Cognex that became the worldwide leader in machine vision systems. On the arm of the robot is mounted a Cognex vision system, which looks out at the world and says that's where the windshields are, this is the one on top, and this is where you should pick it up. And after 36 years of cultivating a unique culture with over 1,400 employees, Dr. Bob's decided to share the life lessons that he's learned along the way. And today's lesson is titled, On Men and Women. People often uh, wonder, has success changed your life? And yes, it's changed the way I live. I live in a much bigger house than I would, would have lived in, and I have uh, more fast cars, good-looking cars and everything, and a big wardrobe. Nah, I wouldn't say big wardrobe. I have a lot, of, a lot of clothes, not like my wife. I don't spend a lot of money on clothes, and that's what I'm going to get at. In some ways, it changes your life, money, but in other ways, it doesn't change who you are and how you view things. Although, uh, you know, I'm very comfortable, 
I still buy used books on Amazon. Okay, why should I pay this price? I don't need new. You know, some things you need new. You're not going to buy used socks or used underwear. Okay, that's for sure. You're going to buy that new. But when it comes to a book, the fact that somebody read it doesn't doesn't change it. Okay, so my wife still drive in my kids. Why are you buying a used book? It'll come in with some pages bent. Yeah, the words are still there. So, so it's a funny thing about life that. I still look for value. I don't want to overpay. Now, that's not true about my wife. <laughs> women, and I'll tell this, there's a funny story about men versus women. And this is very important, matter of fact. I think there should be a course in high school, a required course in high school and in college about how men and women are different. And they should have a woman talk about their view of men in their view of women, then they should have me come in and talk about my view of men and talking about what men are and, what, and how we view women. They're so different. Now, again, I'm not saying that you can't, uh, that a woman can't be a, the chief scientist or can't be a football player. Whatever you want to do, you can do, okay? If, if you can be good at it. But the way that men and women, in general, okay, I'm generalizing, but you know what? Generalizations are generally true. That's the point of a generalization. So generally, men and women are very, very different. Think differently. And it's so important to learn this early on because that's the source of conflict between men and women because they don't get it. Nobody ever told them how different men are than women and how their brains are wired differently and how they think differently. In some ways, better. Men are better in some ways and women are better in some ways. But it's, that doesn't matter. It's all different. And here's a great story about it took my wife on a cruise, and I was surprised. I actually liked the cruise. But cruises have little boutiques on them, you know, or out to sea, and what, you know, the, the cruise company takes advantage. What are you going to do? You're going to spend money. You got, you know, especially the women, they go shopping, okay? So we went to the jewelry store. It's about three days before the cruise ended, and we're, we're walking around. We look, go to the jewelry store, and oh, my wife found a watch. Oh, that's nice. Can I try that on? She tried it on, and I saw a watch. And it was the Casio watch, it turns out. And I, and I tried it. I said, oh, that's a nice watch, too, because most of my watches were thin. You see, 20 years ago, thin was in. Thin watches. You know, see how thin you can make a watch. Now, that does take a lot of skill to pack it all like, like an iPhone. Thinner is better. All of a sudden, watches, it's got to be a big bend here. You've got to be wearing an alarm friggin' clock on your arm for, you know, so, so you can see it. I don't know why, but big is it. So I was looking at a bigger watch, and my wife found this watch. My wife's watch was about $800, and the men's watch was about $600, $800. Okay, we can afford that. I mean, cruise isn't that cheap. Okay, you can afford that. But we said, you know, on any purchase, other than food, I'm going to say, well, let's think about it. Let's think about it. So two days later, which is one day before the cruise ends, big sign, sale, 50% off. Well, of course, because the customers are leaving. These customers you're never going to see again. And there's no shortage of these watches, okay? They come off an assembly line, and they're still going to make money at 50% off. So better make something from these people, and then we'll put new watches up there in the next group. So now her watch, instead of 800, was 400. And my watch, instead of 600, was 300. Unbelievable. My wife says, a Mao, that's her nickname. Oh, I like this watch. It looks great. And I'm happy with my watch. I said, you know what? Let me check on the internet. 
check on the internet. Her watch list price on the internet wasn't 800, wasn't 400, 175. My watch wasn't 600, wasn't 300, it was 250, shipped to your house. Now, that's a story about watches and a story about a cruise. But wait, where's the whole thing is about difference between men and women? How did my wife react? I don't want that watch. I don't want that watch. She loved it. Three days ago, she loved it. She tried it on 15 times, loved that watch. But now, it wasn't an $800 watch anymore. It was 170 I don't want that watch. It's crap. That's how a woman reacts. Me, I liked it at 600 I liked it more at 300 and I bought it at 275 <laughs> So guys are happy. They find something they like. It's cheaper. It's better. It's a better deal. Women, they find something they like. Oh, it's cheaper? No way. I don't want it! <laughs> Men and women are very, very different. And that's a fantastic story. And I think it applies, you know, just about 90% of the time to men and women. Shopping. Shopping. Guys generally don't like to shop, okay? You know, there are cartoons on the internet. Uh, you just, just go on to Google Images and say men versus women. You'll see these. There's one that uh, I recall. It, it's a bird's eye view of a mall. It's a drawing of a mall. And then it says, underneath that, guy shopping for a pair of jeans. It shows a red line from the parking lot to the jeans store and out, right? Under that, woman shopping for a pair of jeans. Red line goes in every store and leaves without the jeans. Buys something else. And that, I think, is another example of men versus women. Men are very goal-oriented. They need something, I need a pair of pliers. I go to Home Depot, I buy the pliers and I leave. A woman needs nylons, she goes to the mall, goes in every friggin' store, buys something and doesn't come home with a nylon. So, you know, it's, it's a riot, but it's important. And it's important that people understand that difference before they get married, before they get married. And a lot of times women Women's way of looking at things is right. When, when we moved to California, we were looking for property. And uh, we had sort of an unlimited budget. And you know, that makes it harder. When you have a limited budget, there are a limited number of homes to look at, and you've got to pick one. When you have an unlimited budget, it took us a year. Okay, so we finally found a home, a very nice house in Rancho Santa Fe. It was uh, $8 million. Beautiful home. Beautiful home and uh, actually signed a P&S on it uh, to buy it. And then we found this home, which is considerably more, more than double. And as an engineer, I put together a spreadsheet and I compared price per foot and operating costs and everything. In the house that we're in now, I said, well, this doesn't make, it, it's over, overpriced. Oh, it's, it's overpriced for what you're getting, right? This house, the $8 million, perfectly good. We loved it until I loved it until my wife found this house and then hired to compare. So I was studying these spreadsheets and I was trying to explain it to my wife on an analytic basis of value and cost projections and whatever. And you know, she's not a scientist, she's an artist. And uh, she said, well, I don't understand all that, but let me ask you two questions. Can we afford this house, the one that's double? I said, yes. And do you like this house? And I said, of course, who could not like this house? It's a work of art, a work of art. 
And she said, well, my rule is, if you like it and you can afford it, you buy it. Which I never thought of that way. You know, I, I thought of, if you like it and can afford it, and it's fair, and this and that, and the maintenance, then you buy it. Too complicated. I decided she was right at this stage in life. Now, at an earlier stage in life, when you're building your career, that's wrong. Just because you can afford it doesn't mean you should buy it, okay? It, it should have value to it, all right? You don't want to overpay at that stage. But at this stage of my life, I decided that a woman's perspective was the right way to think about it, and I'm happy we did because it's a fantastic house, and forget the spreadsheets, forget the spreadsheets. So sometimes it's worth overpaying. It's worth overpaying, and it didn't hurt me to overpay because I enjoy it to that degree. And there you go, another life lesson from Dr. Bob. And my wife and I have a similar story. I was Mr. Spreadsheet with a new house, and she just said, can we afford it? And it's like, gulp. Yeah, we can. And Mr. Cheapskate got overruled by a family that was pretty smart, and and we love our house, and I love my house. But if it had been my way, we would have just not done it. Dr. Bob's story, his life lessons. Here are now American stories. 